Hey everyone, before we jump into our passage today, I want to take just a couple of moments to consider together what it means to be followers of Jesus in the aftermath of what we've experienced this week, not simply in uh, the events at the Capitol, but also in our various relationships as a church family with our brothers and sisters in Christ and our extended uh, families, our immediate families. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus um, in the middle of all of this? Uh, I think that what took place ought to shake us at our core. And yet it's one of these moments for Christians to live differently, to live in a manner worthy of the calling. And certainly the question is, what, is, what does that look like? I, I recently listened to a pastor teach on the story of Lazarus being Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I think that Jesus' response to that moment is really instructive for us today, really instructive for us as we search for the appropriate response to what we have experienced and what we are currently experiencing. And if you're familiar with the story, one of the most notable things that Jesus does is he weeps. Jesus is grieved. He is broken in uh, many respects emotionally. And I think this is certainly a time to weep. Why? Because our country is in pain. If there's anything that we can, we can agree upon today, it's that our country is hurting and it's because of sin. It's because of sin within us and sin all around us, what we have been born into and what is exposed uh, in the world around us. But this pain is, is also pretty specific. And I think in considering what's taken place, it's important to look at where pain shows up so that we'll know how to grieve, how to weep, how to cry, how to offer tears in the middle of this. Um, I think President Trump is in great turmoil. I think he is in great pain. I think few things are more obvious uh, this week than that. And, and hurt people hurt people. When there is pain that is unsettled, it it inflicts and it brings more pain on others. Now, I decry what has taken place in his actions this week, but if there is any animosity or any frustration towards our president, that is the precise reason Jesus says to weep and to even pray for him. And so this week in the aftermath of this, we need to pray for our president. We need to be grieved. We need to weep because Jesus tells us to. I think President Trump's supporters are in great pain. Many feel ignored, they feel belittled, they feel hated, they feel forgotten and left behind. Their pain uh, and anger, I think, really informed and, and told them that they had no better option than to do what they did on Wednesday. And they're in pain. And we should weep for them. We should weep with them. We should be grieved by this. We should pray for them. Many among them were even fellow followers of Jesus that were claiming his name and his will and his way. And, and therefore, there is a grief even within the church that, that has a belief that, that God has not been honored by what's taken place in our country in the election of a new forthcoming president. And, and there, there's grief in that. There's pain in that. People of color are in pain. What black people in particular and what people of color in general saw 
on Wednesday was a Confederate flag in the Capitol building of the United States of America, something that never happened during the Civil War. They also saw armed white people go in and out and back home alive, all the well-knowing and still in disrepair in many ways from the, the black lives that were lost, unarmed people who did not go home. We need to grieve that. We need to lament that. We need to have tears for that church. We need to pray. That's what Christians do. If you want to know what a Christian response looks like right now, it's to weep. When Christians see pain, we cry. We cry like our Lord did and like our Lord has instructed us to do. You see, Jesus got to the tomb and he wept. He had tears. And when we begin with tears, what is washed away are planks of hypocrisy. Planks of hypocrisy that Jesus teaches us are lodged in there like planks as we try to get specks out of others' eyes. And when we begin with tears, we we wash out the things in our our hearts and in our minds that, that we don't want to look at because we are all culpable. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. We are all broken. Because there's more here. Jesus did not just bring tears. He also brought truth. He spoke plainly about death and about resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection in the middle of a funeral. He said, I am the resurrection. And he was angry at evil and death. Many commentators, there's this phrase used in that story uh, in the Gospels of Lazarus' resurrection that says Jesus was deeply moved. It says it about him twice. And many commentators agree that what that means is that he was angry. Well, what was he angry at? He was angry at death. He was angry at evil. He was angry at the brokenness. And he, and he dealt with that reality. You see, we, we do not heal without naming the hurt, without being honest about the pain, about the sin. See, peace and unity require speaking the truth. Peace and unity are not products of merely loving one another and being gracious. We must speak truthfully about what needs to be reconciled if we are to be a people, not only who are reconciled one to another, but the scriptures teach us to be ministers of reconciliation. We bring tears and we bring truth. So what what is the truth? Well, what we have seen from President Trump, particularly over this past week, are lies and vanity. What we saw from these particular supporters was wrong. What we saw from our brothers and sisters in Christ who flew flags of the name of Jesus and who lifted a cross in the middle of all of that is not the way of Jesus. What we have witnessed is a double standard of justice as a result fueled by racism. As always, I want to remind us that that this is a gospel issue. This is a biblical issue before it is a partisan or political issue. Everything is a gospel issue first. That means that we are not a church of Republicans or Democrats. We, We are not a little bit of each of these cultural viewpoints. We don't find a nice blend and happy medium to try to keep every one of you and myself pleased. 
where we go conservative in one situation and progressive in another, Republican in one setting and Democrat in another, we follow a completely different third way. It is the way of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, that does not mean that we choose. It actually absolutely means that we do pick sides. We put a stake in the ground. We say, here's the pain. Here's the truth as best as by God's grace through his spirit that we can. It looks differently in different situations. But we are a people of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are not of this world. And so we always bring tears. We bring truth. We don't just point the finger and say, here's what you have done wrong. Rather, we weep and we confess the sin that is in our hearts. We don't just lament but we trust in Jesus. We follow Jesus. We look to him as the truth and we speak the truth as plainly as we possibly can and as far as it is with us. We weep and we speak truth. We speak the truth of the one who says that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. And so God, we ask for your help in the middle of, of what you have described as a light and momentary affliction. We are going through pain and turmoil, suffering and disunity and discord, fear, anger, animosity that you you said are going to pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us in the age to come. And so we ask for your help. We say, Lord Jesus, please have your way in our hearts. Begin with me, Father. Forgive me, humble me, begin with my brothers and sisters, that we might be a purified and holy church, that we would be an effective church on mission for the sake of Jesus, that we would receive and practice reconciliation, that we might become ministers of reconciliation, that we might lament the pain and hurt, that we might see healing and help come in our time of need. And so, Father, help us. Help us as we come to this text today. In Romans 3, help us to submit to your word. Help us to know by your spirit, apply specifically, uniquely, and powerfully to our church family what you desire for us to hear, how you desire for us to be changed even on the spot. What a promise. We don't have to put a plan together as we hear your word proclaimed. Your word changes us on the spot. It never returns without accomplishing exactly what you intend. So we say, God, have your way in us today in our sorrow, in our bitterness, in our anger, in our angst, in our frustration, in our hypocrisy, in all of that, would you show up and would you cleanse us? Would you purify us of a guilty conscience? Individually, as a church, as a country, Lord Jesus, have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why don't you grab your Bibles and please meet me in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're coming to verse 22 today. Romans 3, verse 22. If you remember, we shifted last week from Paul's uh, explanation of the bleak estate of all humanity, um, which we've certainly seen the the fruit of that in our time in this past week. But we've seen a shift in Paul's uh, argument, his his, uh, correspondence with the first century church in Rome, that uh, Jews and Gentiles you grew up in the church, if you didn't grow up in the church, those who consider yourself religious, those who consider yourself more modern in your thinking, no matter who you are, we are all sinners. We are all guilty. We're all under the wrath of God. He says, regardless of who you are, if you are a human being, you are not righteous. 
The Bible tells us that we have all sinned, that sin is within us, that sin comes out of us in our words, in our actions, in our affections, and even in the things that we fail to do, the things we fail to say, and the affections that we, we wrongly apply or, or do not apply the way in which he's called us to do. And we know that this because Paul uh, says that the primary function of God's word, the primary function of the law is to reveal sin. Because therefore, we neither obey all that God's word teaches us to do, and we are not all that God has created us to be. So when we read the Bible, we are exposed. Our brokenness is always seen. This is one of the reasons why in the middle of the chaos, confusion, and animosity of a week like we've had, we don't want to go to the Bible. We just want to point the finger. We just want to decry this person or that person or or be frustrated with them or say that they are wrong and not open up the scriptures and allow it to expose us. We don't want to begin with ourselves. I I admit that tension is alive and well in my heart. And yet that's what the scriptures teach us. That's what God commands us to do, to go to his word, because it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Because the the beauty of God's word is that it doesn't just reveal sin, it also reveals Christ. It it reveals sin and it reveals Christ. And so these are the words that we studied last week, Romans 3, verse 21. Look at it with me. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Jesus is the righteousness of God who has come to this world. He's entered the pain, entered the story, entered the suffering. And his unique brand of righteousness is not bound up in the law, as we learned. He has fulfilled the law and therefore extends a righteousness to us, which is not a result of works, but actually a gift of grace. The question then for us to consider is, of course, how do we lay hold of this righteousness? How do we embrace it? So if Jesus is the righteousness of God, if he has come to the world, how is it that God's righteousness becomes my righteousness, becomes your righteousness. This is what Paul answers in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. We'll take our time today with the first portion of this verse where Paul answers that question, that question of how do we lay hold of, how do we embrace the righteousness of God as our own This is what Paul is saying, is that revealed righteousness is received through faith. The revealed righteousness of God is received through faith. That's what we need to talk about today. We need to talk about faith and what it means to receive it. What what does Paul mean, though? What what does he mean about this idea that, that, that righteousness is extended to us, that we embrace it by faith? Something that we perhaps talk about a lot, words we use a lot, We'll explore this in a few different ways today. I'd like to look at the gift of faith. What exactly is that? Then we'll look at the fight against faith, uh, why we push away from faith. And then thirdly, we'll look at the test of faith. So what is the gift of faith? How do we reject it or fight against it? And how do we know if we have faith? So the gift, the fight, and then the test. If you remember what Paul Uh, has established and what is consistent with the whole of scriptures is that salvation requires righteousness and no one is righteous. This is what he's taken time, not only in that large portion of first, or rather of Romans 1, 18 through 320, 
But in, in verse 21, Paul gives us the gospel that salvation is not a concept. Salvation is a person. Uh, righteousness is not a practice. Righteousness is a person. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God who has been revealed apart from the law. But, but I think many of us are familiar with that kind of language. We, we know that or, or we've heard that before. That's, that's why Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness or they point to this. They highlight this. This is, this is what the scriptures are talking about. See, this age-old anticipation throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of God's people, is pointing to Christ. The patterns, the promises, and even the very presence of the Son of God in the Old Testament prepares us for the eventual renewal of all things, that one day a Messiah would come to set all things to rights, that he would be our salvation, <clears throat> that he would be the salvation of God's people. But the one who has uh, been revealed must be received. The one who has been revealed must be received. Notice that looking again at verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, Paul uses the same word two different times. First, he says faith through Jesus Christ, and then he says all who believe. That's the same word, faith and belief. It's the same word in the Greek. And the word is pistuo. It means to believe or to trust in something on the basis of its truthfulness and reliability. So this is not a wishful desire, uh, just wanting something to be true, nor is it a leap into the unknown. Faith in the biblical sense, hear this church, church, is entrusting ourselves and building our lives on something, someone that is true, on that which is true. So the way we receive righteousness, the righteousness of God, is by entrusting ourselves to him and building our lives upon him. See, revealed righteousness is received through faith. But what's that even mean? What's, what's that look like? What does it look like to receive this faith? What does it look like to believe in Jesus? Again, ideas that we talk about a lot, but what does this actually look like? Well, first, I think we need to admit that we're not blank slates when it comes to faith and believing and entrusting ourselves to someone or something. And we have to begin there. See, we already believe and have faith in something. And we daily, don't we, build our lives around what we believe. This is why there are clashes online. This is why there was a clash in our capital. This is why there is marching in our streets is because we are building our lives on something already. And in Paul's original audience, and certainly throughout the New Testament, we read about men and women not simply coming to faith in Jesus, but renouncing every other possible and preconceived faith. I think we see three different types of faith that are rejected or renounced in the Bible in order to have genuine faith in Jesus. And as, as believers, this is not something that we simply do as a one act of belief at the bedside of our conversion, but rather this is the daily habit. This is a daily denial of ourselves or to, to offer ourselves to anyone or anything other than Jesus. So three things. First, we renounce faith in religion. Within Paul's first readers, there, there were Jews, many of them. And Jewish life, as we've previously considered, was built upon the law. What and When and what they ate, how they dressed, how they cleaned themselves, and why, particularly when it came to a time to make atonement for sin. And so the primary 
threat of this, of this movement of Jesus in the first century to the Jewish people was that they would abandon the law. Any, any claim that they needed to walk away from the law was an incredible threat upon their understanding of what it meant to, have, to, to give themselves to something or to entrust themselves. They've entrusted themselves to the law. And this is the basic function of all religion. We entrust ourselves to a kind of way, rules, regulations, habits, these sorts of things that we believe that's what makes us righteous. That's what we place our faith in and we offer that to God. But we need to renounce that. We need to renounce that there is anything that we could do to make us glorious and righteous before God, to get his attention. Secondly, what do we renounce? We renounce faith in earthly powers. Paul's first readers were also Romans. They, they believed in an innumerable number of gods and powers in the day. And in fact, in Acts 19, hear this, local merchants uh, instigated a riot because of the threat of followers of Jesus. The merchants were so concerned that people and so many people were going to start believing and following the gospel and entrusting themselves to Jesus, that it was going to draw them away from buying their idols from buying the things that they had made. It was going to bankrupt them. It was going to break down their livelihood. The things that they would take into these uh, uh, temples to worship false gods, they were no longer going to buy because why? They were following Jesus. They renounced all of that. Think about that. Economic systems and industries built on lies are supposed to collapse when people follow Jesus. When people follow Jesus, the powers of this world are supposed to be laid bare and impotent because we have renounced them. Far too often, though, isn't it true that, in fact, we don't renounce those things. We don't leave them behind. We don't leave religion behind. We don't leave earth, earthly powers behind. And they actually continue to build up because we have entrusted ourselves to them and we, we don't break loose of them. We not only renounce faith in religion, but we renounce faith in earthly powers, but also we renounce faith in ourselves. See, only, uh, Jesus only applauds a couple of people in the New Testament for having what the writers call great faith, for this, this kind of exemplary faith. Usually, more times than not, Jesus is scolding uh, not only religious leaders, but even his closest followers, his disciples, for not having enough faith, for having a lack of of faith, but two he praises a soldier with a suffering servant and a woman with a possessed daughter. In both cases, what Jesus recognized as great was not just that they had faith in Jesus, but rather their humility and their surrender. In, in, in other words, they did not have faith in themselves. Not only were they coming to him for help, but the centurion didn't think that he was fit to receive Jesus in his home. And the woman considered herself like a dog eating crumbs that had fallen from a master's table. Both of them were, were in due subjugation to, to their Lord. They, they did not find themselves worthy. They had denied themselves. Interestingly, Jesus' disciples were Israelites. And he was always correcting them for their little faith. And the centurion and the woman, neither were particularly religious and neither were Hebrews. But what they did have was the renunciation of themselves and having faith in themselves. So we renounce religion, we renounce earthly powers, and we renounce ourselves in order to even be ready to receive faith 
in Jesus. In an article uh, for Forbes magazine in 1999, atheist Richard Dawkins wrote these words. Modern theists, it's people who believe in God. When it comes to Baal and the golden calf, Thor and Wanton, Poseidon, Apollo, Mithras, and Amun-Ra, they are actually atheists. He continues, we are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further. So he, he argues that to be an atheist is simply to go one or simply one step away from being a theist in general and a Christian in particular, just one more God in which to renounce our faith. And well, he's right. That's true. This is precisely and the necessary and simultaneous step to receiving Jesus as Lord, denying that anything and anyone and any other power, any other view, any other way could possibly be Lord, even myself. To come to Jesus is at one and the same time denying every other Lord. See, faith in Jesus is an exclusive relationship. And the fact that, that we have to deny every other Lord, I think that makes it clear this has to be a gift. This is how we know that it is by, by grace that we have this faith. Why? Why is that true? Because left to ourselves, we can't possibly know all of the things we believe in, let alone completely detach ourselves from everything that we believe in. See, we are blind and we are unaware of all of the things that we hope in on a daily basis because we love them so much. We love them so much. This is what led writer Rosario Butterfield to, to, to say this. Hear, hear this. This is so helpful. We cannot will ourselves into the deep obedience that God requires. We can't obey until we ourselves have received this grace and picked up our cross. She continues, we can't obey until we have laid down our life with all our faults and worldly identities and idols. We can't obey until we face the facts. Facts, the gospel comes in exchange for the life we once loved. Faith in Jesus, my sister and my brother, is the renunciation of every other faith. This alone makes us ready to receive. So what is the gift of faith? Well, Paul implies in verse uh, 22 in Romans 3, but he is explicit in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Hear, hear what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we read this verse, it's important to ask, what exactly is the gift? What exactly is not of our own doing? Is it grace? So is it another way of essentially restating that? Or is it faith? Well, grammatically speaking, the word there in Ephesians chapter 2, gift, more naturally modifies faith. Faith, then, is a gift from God. Do you see? We cannot will this type of faith and obedience into existence. But the good news, hear this, this is so good. The good news is that what we cannot will on our own, God has willed by grace. What you cannot will, what I cannot will on my own, God has willed by grace. This is consistent with 2 Peter. The apostle opens his second letter saying this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word obtained, also very critical, communicates this idea of attainment, not by personal effort or exertion, but as, as, a, as a couple of commentators put it, is like ripe fruit falling into one's lap. Peter says faith in the righteousness of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ, is given to us with the exact same amount of energy that is required to receive a fruit, a piece of fruit falling from a tree. Faith is a gift. Paul says the same thing in Philippians, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See, what has been granted to Paul's Philippian brothers and sisters is faith and belief in Jesus because faith is a gift. Well, what does all of this mean? Well, isn't it true that we likely trust and even know that what Jesus did was a gift? He graciously took on flesh, died in our place and for our sins. He rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death and now offers righteousness and salvation to us as a gift, a gift of grace. I think many of us know that and believe that, but how do we take hold of it? How do we embrace this righteousness? Well, that is a gift too. Paul writes to the Romans and to us by his by the Holy Spirit of God. We need to believe and have faith. And where does that come from? That comes from God too. So God, hear this, supplies the righteousness necessary for salvation and the faith necessary to receive that righteousness. What Jesus has done by grace. And so is the faith to believe and build your life on Christ. What he has done is by grace and how we receive what he has accomplished is by grace. This is so immensely helpful and incredibly practical for us. Let's think about it. I don't know about you, but the daily struggle that I have with sin, with being desiring to be a selfless husband and a patient father, of being a humble and faithful elder, invariably comes down to trusting the Lord. Having faith then in his provision and his power and his protection and his love and his care for me and for those around me, be it my wife or my children or, or you, my church family. See, I don't, I don't trust the Lord always. And what this reality, this idea that, that faith is a gift, what this truth teaches me and teaches you in those moments of sinful temptation is that I need not work harder. Instead, I need to confess that I am trusting in other things than Jesus. I am trusting in other people rather than Jesus. And instead, I need to ask that the Lord, what, would give me faith. Because he gives faith by grace. So instead of mustering up the courage to believe, I need to admit to God. Here, this is where it's practical. Admit to God what you are believing instead of him, what you are trusting instead of him, in whom you have faith in instead of him, and then ask him for faith. That's what the father in Mark 9 asked Jesus. He said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That's what the disciples asked of Jesus after he warned them about sin. They, They all said, increase our faith. And what does Jesus do in each of those cases? 
he increases their faith. He gives them faith. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 3, verse 22. The revealed righteousness of God cannot be earned. It must be received through faith. And as much as this righteousness is a gift, so is the faith to entrust yourself to Christ and to build your life upon this righteousness that he has extended to us. That's the gift of faith. But I wonder if you've noticed, there's something in us that I think is incredibly drawn to that gift of faith, to that gift of grace and to grace itself, but there's something also that we are repelled by. Something about grace doesn't sit well with us. Something about mercy unsettles us a little bit. Something about being loved by the merit of Christ and not our own messes with our comfortable structures of relationships and society we have set up in our world, doesn't it? Something about salvation by faith alone seems too good to be true, and so we don't trust it. Let me see if I can bring this home for our, to our hearts. Have you ever noticed that a time when you felt guilty when somebody surprised you with a gift and you didn't have something to give them? Have you ever made plans to be generous to somebody only after they were generous to you? Or perhaps much harder, I know for me, only willing to forgive someone or to extend forgiveness when they have already done so for you. See, to be sure, these acts may simply be because of the generative nature of grace, that, that grace brings life to more grace. Grace begets grace. However, it's when we keep score. It's when we feel an obligation to kindness. It's when our motivations are grounded in how others will see us. That's when our righteousness becomes payment for grace, becomes a transactional relationship instead of a grace-filled one. See, in doing so, we not only fight faith, but we make war on grace. You see, what we do in our relationships with one another, we do with God. We fight the gift of faith with works, and it's a matter of the heart. Jesus saw this battle all the time in his ministry, especially when he gave the gift of faith to someone whom religious types deemed unrighteous, the sexually promiscuous, the poor, the sick, the blind, and the deaf, the tax collector, all people that the religious elites deemed as unrighteous. These people, though, ran to Jesus. They ran to grace. They run to the Lord with nothing but faith. See, there is something in the sinner, the one who knows that they are a sinner, the one who has nowhere else to go, who runs to grace, who is deeply drawn to grace. It is in our haughtiness. It's in our arrogance. It's in our pride where we are repelled by grace. It's when we already have faith in religion. Or like in our culture, we are so steeped in meritocracy that we begin to trust it. This, in fact, is what I think we already believe. This, when we feel ourselves rejecting grace, we have to confess that we believe in a kind of meritocracy, even with the Lord. We have faith in religion. We have faith in earthly powers. Therefore, we have a faith in ourselves. Each of these is a heart-level form of meritocracy or a transactional way of seeing the world. We trust what we create and control and can forecast. 
because we are people deeply rooted in the idea of earning. Now, in, in some social context, just because so I can avoid some emails this week, in some social context, th- this is good and healthy and helpful and wise to be grounded in a kind of meritocracy. I mean, e- even Paul writes in, to the Thessalonians that if, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But that, that comes from pride. That's a, a lack of willingness to work. That's a consequence then for sin. But when we entrust our hearts and build our lives around earning rather than receiving, it is to our demise. Why is that the case? Why does that actually dismantle and destroy and bring us down? Because when we have faith in earning, we build our lives on our righteousness, not on God's. We reject Jesus' righteousness by trusting in our own. I think there's this lie that we're believing in. I think it fuels this kind of thinking and it stabilizes us. It's it's the lie that we think we can get more through earning than receiving. We, We believe we can get more through earning than receiving. We, I mean, even from a more elemental level, we think it's better to earn than receive. We, we think that something that we have attained by our effort is more valuable than that which we have been given by grace. Let me prove it to us for your joy and for mine. Think about the disdain that we can have for someone who got something that we don't think that they earned. Especially, real talk, if we think that we did earn it or that we do deserve whatever reward or whatever thing that they got. But truthfully, here, here's the truth of the scriptures, is that receiving is always better than earning. Let's think about this. To put some biblical language around this, faith is greater than works and grace is greater than a wage. How is this possible? Well, first of all, a wage is transactional. Therefore, it has limits. You can only gain as much as you can earn. But grace, grace is given out of love. Therefore, you gain as much as you are loved. So let's think about that. Which has a higher ceiling? Which has more possibility? Your ability or God's affection? Let it settle in. We need to hear this. What has more power, church? Your ability or God's affection? I think our failure to trust God's grace is a failure to know God's love. Our failure to trust God's grace is a failure to know God's love. And you are so deeply loved. In Christ, my sister and my brother, you are loved. One of the fascinating things about Paul's grammatical structure in uh, Romans 3.22 is that it's not simple and straightforward. The English Standard Version, the the version that we often usually read from, says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. However, there's much debate, particularly lately, has taken place of whether or not this text should actually read the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So is it the righteousness of God extended to us because of our faith, or is it because of the faithfulness of Jesus? Well, yes. 
I don't, I don't mean to be cavalier with God's word and act like it doesn't matter which one it actually is or like that Paul didn't have a particular idea in mind. But, but if the tension is present in our reading, that there is some case to be made that it may have been present in Paul's day as well. And, and bringing, bringing it up exposes, I think, an important reality and theology of our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. That is, our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus, which reveals his great love for us. Let me speak on it. The faithfulness of Jesus is demonstrated in his incarnation. He did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He dismantled religion then by love. The faithfulness of Jesus is demonstrated in his testing in the wilderness. He rejected the kingdoms and glory of this world. He defeats earthly powers out of love. The faithfulness of Jesus is demonstrated in surrendering his will to the heavenly father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He crucifies individualism by first being crucified out of what? Say it with me, church, out of love. Jesus Christ then has defeated and dismantled every object of faith we could possibly trust through earning. He has defeated religion. He has defeated earthly powers. He's even defeated you, yourself, your, your sinful condition, all out of love. You see, Jesus has accomplished what we could never earn. And Jesus has secured what we could never afford. That means that what we receive through love is infinitely more valuable, is infinitely better, is infinitely more powerful than anything we could receive as a wage. In fact, the wage that we deserve is death. See, if we want a life based on earning, the scriptures say that the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, the payment for sin is death. That's why a worldview, a, a view, a, a faith in earning always leads to death because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ says this, I'll pay your wage. I will pay the wage that you have earned. I'll pay it out of love and I'll destroy what's destroying you. How much do we need to hear this today? I'll defeat what's defeating you. I will kill what's killing you. Satan, sin, and death. He dismantles and destroys all of these things. All of these things we could possibly pay, place our faith in that destroy and defeat us. He says, I'll put those to death and I'll give you life. A life built on faith and grace is infinitely more powerful, is infinitely better than anything you could afford on your own. It loves you. Remember this word, pastuo, means to believe or trust in something on the basis of its truthfulness and reliability. Who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Who is more truthful than Jesus? Who is more reliable than Jesus? Who is more faithful than Jesus? When you receive faith in Jesus like a ripe fruit falling from a tree, you are one who builds your life around his faithfulness and righteousness and not your own. So, 
we've considered this gift of faith. We've, we've acknowledged that we fight against faith. Now what's the test of faith? Well, perhaps paradoxically or surprisingly, the test of faith or the demonstration of faith is works of righteousness. That's right. When, we, when, when, when works are placed as a response to received and revealed righteousness rather than a way of earning righteousness, they actually demonstrate genuine faith in Jesus. So we, we need to ask, how do we know if we are obeying from righteousness or obeying for righteousness? How do we know when we are obeying from righteousness as, as a response to what we have received or for righteousness as a way of trying to earn righteousness or salvation? See, when we believe in Christ and build our lives on Christ, our lives don't always look different than religious or moral people around us. Stay, stay with me on this. See, when we obey from, right, from righteousness, we may do the same things as someone who acts for righteousness. Think about it. When, when someone brings, or let's just say you, when you bring a meal to a friend who is sick, did you do that as a response to the righteousness that God has entrusted to you and given you faith to believe in? Or are you doing that in order to gain righteousness? I don't know. You maybe don't even know, but here's the good news. Jesus knows. Jesus knows, and he spoke about how we could know. Two particular ways that I think he reveals in Matthew 6, which I think is consistent with his entire teaching uh, in the New Testament, but specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he talks about giving to the needy in two different ways. He says this, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. One of my seminary professors in teaching this text used to always say you get paid once. You get paid by people, their adulation, their praise, or their attention, or you get paid by the Father. And let's be clear, that, that heavenly reward is righteousness, the received righteousness of God, which cannot be earned. The earthly reward is the attention of the crowd. Here one minute on the next. So the first way to discern whether or not you or I are acting out of righteousness or for righteousness is to be honest about the reward you really want. Do you want the attention of people or do you want the righteousness of the Father? In other words, do you believe you already have God's attention in Christ or are you trying to get it? Secondly, Notice that the same action has two different motivations. To be sure, the reward is wrapped up in this, but the heart is always central when we speak about our motivations. When you obey, when you do works of righteousness, what's going on in your heart? Perhaps a more pointed way to put this is, do you genuinely believe that God loves you? Do you genuinely believe? When you are doing works of righteousness, do you genuinely believe that God loves loves you even before you do it, or is he only going to love you after you do it? 
Because you see, the, the love of God settles us. His love grounds our fears. His love shakes us loose from the grip of sin and idolatry and fear of being rejected. His love frees us from hustling for our holiness. See, do you trust that God has already given you eternal attention in Christ? Or do you think that you have to settle for the fickle love of the crowd and act as if that's from God? As we've mentioned, we don't always know what things we believe and don't believe and what we are trusting and what we are not trusting in. But God gives us more grace. He gives us faith. He also has given us each other. See, something that I think we all need to be reminded of on a consistent basis is you don't know yourself better than everyone else. God certainly knows you way better than you know yourself. And your church family actually sees things that you don't. Your group, this is one of the beautiful things about group. They see and know stuff about you that maybe you're not willing to admit yet. And so one of the things that we ought to do with this particular passage as it relates to what we are trusting and what we are believing is ask someone, ask your spouse, ask your children, ask members of your group, ask your group leaders, are there ways in my life in which I seek God's attention like I don't have it yet? Are there ways in which I seek the adulation of others, the praise of others, the attention of others because I don't believe that God loves me? Did I do that this week? And when you ask the question, we got to listen. Paul says, Romans 3, verse 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is a gift of grace. Stop trusting in false hopes. Stop fighting against this faith, which is a gift, and live according to a revealed righteousness that you have received by grace through faith in Jesus. God, be honored in our church. Be honored in our hearts. Be honored in this world, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.